Nature Solutionaries is a podcast about conservationists who do amazing things for nature and bring inspiration into our lives. Coral reefs provide food, coastal protection and livelihoods to a billion people worldwide. Yet somewhere between 25 to 40% have already been lost due to climate change, ocean acidification, overfishing and excess nutrients. Luckily, there are amazing organizations like Fragments of Hope that have been able to achieve great results in coral reef restoration. In this podcast episode, I will talk to Lisa Karn, the founder of Fragments of Hope, and Dr. Maya Trotz, professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of South Florida and a board member of Fragments of Hope. Together, we'll discuss their coral reef restoration results in the Laughing Bird Cay National Park in Belize, which is considered by many experts the best example of coral reef restoration in the Caribbean. Lisa, you have lived in Belize for 25 years. When did it occur to you that you wanted to protect corals? Well, it's over 25 years now. Um, I guess um, in 1995, when I was um, a volunteer at the Smithsonian Institute's Marine Field Station at Caribou Key, it was Mark and Diane Littler. Diane Littler, actually, they're algae experts, who said to me in 1995 that whatever you do, it better be about the corals, because uh, 1995 was actually the first documented bleaching event. Um, at that time, I was not super familiar with coral reefs, And um, it wasn't really until, well, we, we watched the decline of the, the health go down um, for several years after that. But uh, it was the, um, a Category 4 Hurricane Iris in 2001 that hit Placencia and Laughing Bird Key directly, which was the impetus for the restoration work. And how did you get to Belize? On a plane. <laughs> I came on vacation first in 1994 and um, stayed with a, a family in Placencia. And um, on my second trip in early 1995, uh, it just so happened the Smithsonian was in contact with that family about expanding their, their field station. And so um, the woman um, showed me the fact, back then it was faxes, showed me the fax and said, hey, maybe you can get a job with these people. So I went home and wrote them, and that's how I got my first volunteer research permit in Belize is through the Smithsonian Institute and through the local family in Placencia that connected me. And since then, you've been living in Placencia? Yes, full-time since 1995. Wow. And um, can you talk a little bit about how you founded your organization, Fragments of Hope? Sure. We, um, we were doing the work, the restoration work from 2006, um, but as an individual, you are limited with um, the type of grants you can apply for. And so it was external experts that really urged us um, to go ahead and form um, an organization. There were so many other organizations in Belize, I was hesitant for several years. Um, and what we did is form a, um, a not-for-profit community-based organization. So that was registered in Belize in 2013, and it has a local um, board of uh, community members here in Belize. And um, that allowed us to apply for much larger grants and project funds than I could as an individual. 
And then in 2015, we were able to register Fragments of Hope in the U.S. as a 501c3 nonprofit and Maya Trotz, um, as well as some other different people are on that board, but they're linked by me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Maya, I wanted to ask you um, one thing. Your research, you are a professor um, at the University of South Florida, and your research focuses on water quality, water resource protect, source protection, and water provision for sustainable communities. I'm wondering how the two of you met and how you launched cooperation. Sure. We met in 2014, in June 2014. I was in Placencia with colleagues and students from anthropology and environmental engineering at USF. We were starting a new project funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation to build partnerships for research and education. Our focus was on recovering resources, namely water, energy, and nutrients from wastewater. And we wanted to meet people and learn about the area. My dad recommended I call Lisa. He worked with an organization, the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, And they had supported some of the early work of Fragments of Hope and so gave me the, her contact information. We were all really excited uh, that Elisa agreed to meet us as uh, we had already heard about Fragments of Hope in the community and about her. That um, trip, Lisa and two other persons from FOH came to our hotel room, projector, computer, everything in hand. And remember the They gave an excellent presentation, about two hours on coral restoration and their work. Everyone was blown away and we became friends on that trip. Um, in fact, I think I ended up spending hours over at her place chatting and, and building a relationship. And um, personal reasons took me back to Belize. I think in 2015, colleagues were also there and Fragments of Hope took us on a on a trip uh, to to harvest some of the corals at um, Harvest Key, which is one of the keys where a cruise ship was going to be coming. And so we were taken there to see what the reef looked like. They harvested corals. We went to Laughing Bird Key National Park and got to see how they put them in the nursery. And then they took us on a tour around, around the park. Later that summer, Lisa invited me on a spawning trip and... I don't think I've uh, turned back from, from Placencia ever since. I go there for personal reasons, for research. I've had students who do their research projects there and Lisa and Fragments of Hope, they've really been the anchor for our work. I now run or I'm the director of an, another NSF grant, which is a national research traineeship on food, energy, water systems. And we would like, we are working with partners in Belize and trying to give our students opportunities to build relationships with community members and explore research topics there. Okay, wow. And so you've been returning to Belize, let's say, once per year or you spend there? Much more than okay. once per year. Every, any, any vacation, any holiday, any chance I get, I try to go. In addition, we've taken a class in June 2019. We took a class down for two weeks and the plan was to return in 2020 and that hasn't happened. But many of our students wrote interdisciplinary grants, which we approved to, and many were focused uh, in Belize. And because of COVID-19, all of that has sort of been on hold right now. Sure. 
Um, okay, well, now that we know a little bit about both of you, I'd like to ask um, Lisa about uh, her work on the coral reef restoration. Um, as you said, in 2001, um, Laughing Bird Key National Park in Belize was affected directly by hu Hurricane Iris, uh, which was Category 4 hurricane, which caused massive damage to the reef, reducing coral cover less to less than 6%. Um, how did you start to restore the reef? Well, let me just also add that in 1998, we also had Hurricane Mitch um, that while it didn't hit Belize, it sat right off the coast of southern Belize. And so that was a much larger, slower moving wave action that caused a lot of mechanical damage as well versus Iris, which was a smaller, fast moving uh, category four that did hit Laughing Bird Key directly. So our first, um, we wanted to begin in 2002, but it took us many years to convince people that um, the idea was viable or even made sense. Um, it was not popular like it is now, the concept of reef restoration. So we began, we finally got our first, re I got my first research grant from PACT, which is a Belizean institution, Protected Areas Conservation Trust. They get some of their funding from like the tourist exit fees and now that we have cruise ship tourism, some of the head taxes on the on the cruise ships, etc. That was a very small research grant, 10,000 US. Um, and what we did was transport um, what we called fragments of, many people called fragments of opportunity, which means uh, naturally broken pieces of corals from either storm or other damage on the reef, but are still living. And so um, we took those um, from the outer reef to Laughing Bird Key. And throughout the whole project, uh, we began and ended with um, community consultations. And when we started, everyone was like, why do you have to go so far for these corals? They're everywhere. You shouldn't have to go so far for them. But uh, we spent two weeks mapping and um, they were not everywhere anymore. And so I think that that really, uh, that project sort of opened up the community's eyes too to realize how dire things had gotten even though some of us that have been doing marine surveys all these years knew things were going downhill because they used to say you know these corals are like sand they're so common they're everywhere um, and it was really then that people realized they're not everywhere anymore and can you explain why it was so hard to uh, persuade the local community you said that there was a break between 2001 when the hurricane came and 2006 when you started the coral reef restoration work. What was happening these five years? Well, some of the same criticisms you still hear today, such as um, if you're not solving the problem, why they died in the first place, why would you bother putting them back if you're not addressing the big picture? So in our case, you could argue climate change has only gotten worse and not better. Why would you even attempt this? The other common argument was um, scale, that you can never do it to scale, um, and so it's a waste of time, that kind of thing. Uh, what changed um, for us was uh, in 2006, the United States listed the Caribbean acroporids as endangered species. And so while some colleagues in Florida complain about the stricter permitting, what that did was open up um, Belizean decision makers' eyes to realize that I was maybe making sense, that if they're listed as endangered species in the U.S., huh, maybe we don't have them everywhere like we used to. And so I believe that's how we, we, we got the initiative started in 06. 
But that was on the higher level, right? Well, no, not not super high. Well, I mean, we did have a Belize Fisheries Department research permit, but it was from PACT that we got the proposal. But like I said, just sort of the circulating talk around was that, you know, are you crazy? This could never work. What are you thinking? Um, and it was a very small trial. I think we only moved 17 or 19 um, pieces of one species to Laughing Bird Key in um, late 2006. And so there was a long pause and uh, we didn't take up the, the nursery work and massive outplanting until 2009 and 2010. But that long pause, in fact, most of those corals from 06 are still alive in uh, Laughing Bird Key National Park. So even though it might look like we're moving slow, in fact, when you're looking at a system like coral reefs, you need more than six or 12 months to really talk about results. You need them to be much longer term. And when you were talking about these arguments, where were they coming from? Were they coming from the Belizean um, policymakers or from the Placentian community? When you said that, oh, you need to uh, deal with the problem and not with the consequences? Both. 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 Okay. Um, and so one of the one of the nice things that happened right away is when uh, the community, uh, the local fishers and tour guides immediately saw that the corals were taking and growing. And then they realized that, yes, this is based on how they naturally are adapted to high wave energy because these specific corals can um, fragment or reproduce asexually, such as um, many of your house plants all around the world. You take a clipping or a cutting and you root and you get the same, um, the same exact individual starting again. And that's how these corals that live and thrive in the very shallow reef areas have adapted to the high wave energy. That's super interesting. So th this is called micro-fragmentation, right? No, um, micro-fragmentation is just an extension of what I described. So when we started in 2006, and, and actually before that, we were doing as much research as we could on it, the little bit of information out there suggested that the larger the transplant, the better, the higher survivorship it would have. So at that time, it was suggested that your transplanted coral should be at least um, 30 centimeters uh, in one dimension. And that was sort of the mantra uh, for a few years. Again, there were not that many people doing this type of work back then. And then when we um, started using the nurseries, the in-situ nurseries from Dr. Austin Bowden Kirby, who's now based in Fiji and has an organization called Corals for Conservation. We've uh, modified a lot of his methods, but it's his table nursery methods that we, that we are using. And for example, with the staghorn, the longer, skinnier one, uh, whenever we trimmed it or harvested it from the nursery, we would notice that it grew back even faster. So again, the analogy we used for a while was uh, pruning vigor, much as if you go trim the trees or bushes in your yard, um, you get back faster growth, right? You trim off um, um, the scraggly or the long pieces. So we were seeing that already. So when we met Dr. David Vaughn, uh, I want to say it was 2015, um, it was my second time to Moat Marine Laboratory for a course. This one was on sponges, but he was growing, they've been growing corals up there since at least 04, because I was up there for a coral disease course as well. And so his sort of, what he says is his eureka moment was, they were growing some corals in a tank, 
and one of the elk horn broke off and he thought it would die and yet it grew back faster. And so it's, just, it's the same principle that we were describing, but it was kind of a revelation to say you could do really small pieces instead of larger pieces. Yet most people doing the microfragmentation right now are doing it in land-based nurseries, so in controlled aquarium settings or tank settings. Uh, and what that means is they can go very, very small, like down to a few polyps. And when we wanted to apply this in the field, we don't have land-based nurseries here. Everything is in water, in the ocean. The first thing we did was size class experiments. So for us in the field, we've decided and found out through, um, through experimentation that the fragment should be at least five centimeters or so. Uh, but that's still a big difference than 30 centimeters. And it also means that for certain species, we can bypass the nursery time completely because prior to using this method, we would take the, the small elkhorn coral, maybe 10 centimeters, put it in a nursery for a year or two until it got a little bit larger and, and then outplant it. Now we can skip that step entirely and directly outplant these microfragments. And we're seeing great success everywhere we've done it in Belize so far, the fore reef, the back reef, fringing reef. Um, it's working really well. So we're really thrilled with that. So you, you stopped using the, the method that you uh, had used before, which was uh, cutting the bigger pieces of corals up to 30 centimeters. And now you're only um, doing the fragmentation and microfragmentation, right? No, no, we still we're still using um, the ropes in the nurseries and we're still doing experiments with other species as well. So there is no one recipe for growing corals or outplanting corals. And um, what's important with this work is learning from uh, your mistakes and from your, your successes so that you can adapt as you go along. And most of our adaptations have concentrated on being more efficient, um, getting more uh, reef restored quicker than before. And that means that we, we are continually exploring different methods and we're at no one time just doing one thing. And um, so as you said, there is no one recipe for um, coral reef restoration. Does it mean that um, the type of coral reef restoration that you do in Belize could not be applied to for in Burma or in Indonesia? Well, I cannot speak to Burma or Indonesia per se, but we do know that the, that the techniques that we're using uh, have been applied in Colombia and St. Bart's for sure. We've done training um, with those folks and, and gone to those sites. And um, what we usually tell people is that every site is different. And so, um, in fact, what they did in St. Bart's was exactly what we recommended, which is they tried multiple different methods. And so you, if you don't know your site and your corals very well, you need to experiment with more than one option. So I cannot speak personally to the other side of the world, but um, I would imagine, and based on colleagues that I know, that many of the techniques are applicable, maybe just not exactly the same as, as we're doing them. And how many coral nurseries do you have? Right now, I think we have, um, I think it's around 23, 20, 25. And are they all... Uh in the area of uh, Placentia or they are in different? No, no, no. We expanded um, outside of Laughing Bird Key in 2015 to um, Spit, another another marine protected area. And um, we also have some control sites out of the marine protected area. And then in 2016, we expanded to two other marine protected areas here, Southwater Key Marine Reserve, Turnaf Atoll Marine Reserve. And then just last year, 
at the request of the fisheries department, we installed some nurseries in three northern uh, marine protected areas, Bacalar Chico, Hul Chan, and Kikakar Marine Reserves. So we're in multiple MPAs now. Uh, and who's who will be uh, planting those corals in those places? Fragments of hope or some other people? Well, we've conducted training um, for the most northern sites in uh, 2020, and uh, we're grappling with that right now. Those nurseries came about due to the appearance of what's called stony coral tissue loss disease. Not very uh, creative name, but um, a devastating disease that's affecting more than 20 species, and it uh, was in Florida for four or five years. It swept through the coast of the Yucatan, and it's um, appeared in multiple places throughout the Caribbean, Jamaica, um, the Caymans, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it showed up here in Belize in June 2019 and has spread from the most northern marine reserve, Bacalar Chico, all the way through Hold Chan and Kikakar, which is why um, the fisheries department asked us to do these emergency interventions with the acroporid corals because these are some of the few species that don't get this particular disease. While they do get other diseases, they don't get this devastating one that is such a rapid, it, it kills the corals very fast. And right now, there's a lot of people working on trying to figure out what the cause of the disease is, if there's a cure. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of positive um, news on that front just yet. Okay, so so unfortunately the corals die. I thought that um, it just impacts them in a bad way, but they no, they die. die. But they, they do. die. Okay, mm-hmm. mm, that's very bad. Uh, and regarding the corals in the nurseries, um, how how long do they grow? And after and um, how do you plant them on the new locations? Well, again, um, now remember certain species we're not using in the nurseries. We can do direct outplanting. Um, the ones that we have in the nurseries, uh, we've found there's different growth rates from north to south. And we don't know why yet. It's not a bad thing, but they are growing much faster in southern Belize than they are in central and northern Belize. So in southern Belize, um, they don't need to be in the nursery any longer than nine or 11 months. And you have plenty um, new material to harvest and outplant. In the more extreme case, in northern Belize, we've waited a year and a half, almost two years sometimes, to um, outplant. Um, the primary method we use for outplanting is um, a regular um, building Portland cement. Excuse me. Mic- On the cookies? Uh, no, no, no. Those those are for... Um, well, those some of those are when we outplant certain species like the pillar coral, which is more fragile and has its polyps out. So we do put that on the cookie and then outplant that cookie in the cement on the reef. Other um, species like the acroporids, um, the Caribbean acroporids, they grow much faster. So we can outplant them directly into the cement and then they will, um, they will use that cement sort of um, base and fuse over the reef and make a base. And um, once they do that, we're, we're quite happy because that means even if a storm comes or a, a diver kicks off a branch or something, once it has a base on the bottom of the reef, it will grow back because as how I mentioned before, the way that they um, asexually reproduce. But that's again, just one of our um, transplanting methods. We have several. Okay, um, and regarding the Laughing Bird Key, Key National Park, uh, how much area have you been able to restore so far? That one we were just able to definitively quantify recently that we have restored um, over 2,300 meters squared solid 
of replenished acroporas in about a hectare of shallow reef habitat. Um, we struggled for many years um, with the best way to quantify um, the work. And as I mentioned, these corals do spread out on their own. So if you have the right site selection criteria and you choose the right corals to transplant, uh, then you can let Mother Nature take its course. And that's what we've seen at Laughing Bird Key, that there is a lot of natural growth and reproduction after we sort of just reseeded the area. So that's just one site. We have many other sites that we're working on quantifying as well. That's the oldest site. So uh, can you talk about the other sites as well? Um, I can tell you that uh, Moho Key, um, directly next door to Laughing Bird, is our control site um, that is not protected. Um, and we started there much later, about five or six years later, and um, we're a fraction of um, a fraction of the amount of corals there. But what happened in 2015 is because we started working in multiple other sites then um, versus Laughing Bird Key, where that was the only site we concentrated on for so long. Um, we're, we're not seeing as, as quick um, as amount of outplanting, but we are in, let's see, silks, oh, probably over 15 different sites and all those different MPAs. And um, that's exactly what we spend a lot of money on is quantifying the results with both um, diver-based and drone uh, orthomosaics. And it's quite expensive and quite high-tech. And it, it costs more money than it actually does to do the outplanting and restoration work. Um, all right. <clears throat> and regarding the uh, uh, Laughing Bird Key National Park, uh, I, I previously said that uh, only 6% of the coral reef cover remains. So can you estimate how much you have, how much you have been able to restore? I mean, you, you said it in meters, but can you say it in person? Like a percentage. In percent, yes. Yes, that's what we use the diver-based mosaics for. And so we know that we've increased coral cover up to 40, up to 60% in some sites there from less than 6%. And for perspective, there is a national, prior to COVID, every two years, um, <clears throat> surveys were completed by a Healthy Reefs Initiative here um, that we started in 2006 with uh, 140 sites and then every two years, a smaller subsite of those reef sites are, are quantified for both coral cover and um, other, other health indicators. And the last one is called a report card for Mesoamerican Reef because it includes um, uh, Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala. But for Belize, um, the average live coral cover in Belize in 2006 was just 11%. And um, that increased to 16% by 2017, 2018. So that's to give you some perspective on our site that had less than 6% and now is upwards of 50 and 60% in uh, less time, in less than a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, Maya, you have seen um, several um, reef restoration uh, sites. So can you, can you explain why um, this coral reef um, restoration project has been so successful? Sure. So I I haven't seen that many. And thanks to Fragments of Hope, I've been able to go with them to Jamaica, where we've seen some of the restoration sites there. And I've been to Barbados, where they have some nurseries. They haven't really done a lot of restoration as yet. I think some of the reasons Belize is successful is, one, the commitment in Belize on a national level to the reefs versus some of the other places. 
I know in Jamaica, there's been long-term research where many marine scientists and biologists have been trained on coral reefs. But that national commitment to the reef environment, I don't think is, is as significant as one sees in Belize. The non-government or non-governmental organizations, I think, have really strong in Belize. You know, Belize is probably one of the few, if not the only Caribbean country that has banned offshore oil drilling, which is significant as places like Jamaica and even Barbados are doing oil, you know, looking at permission for, for mining the seabed. So I think those things sort of impact your population. And then I, I do believe that Fragments of Hope has just been a really great organization that has gotten significant uh, attention from the international community, from scientists, but also a lot of buy-in from people in Placencia to who take ownership for for what's happened at Laughing Bird Key National Park and now at other reefs throughout Belize. Many also speak about... Well, I just wanted to add that um, usually what we say, what sets our work apart is um, the fact that we've concentrated in the very shallow reef areas, whereas many other restoration uh, projects, um, maybe they've switched now, but before they were around 12, 18 meters, 12 meters, um, and we are in the, the very shallow areas, uh, specifically because that's where the these corals thrive so much, but also because that's what gives shoreline protection one of the main one of the uh, important ecosystem services for coral reefs. Um, so there's that, and then there's the fact that um, it is, com- as Maya was alluding to, it is all strictly community based. So I was living in Belize well over 10 years before we started this project. So it wasn't as if I just flew in from outside and was a stranger. And so it's always been, um, besides myself, um, you know, local Belizeans that, that are doing the work. And uh, we do pay them once they're trained, they get a daily stipend. For, um, and um, so we, we're, we're trying to swing towards, especially with COVID now, it's not full time, but as a supplemental art- alternative livelihood income for uh, tour guides and fishers. Um, and then finally, just to add to um, some of the good news with the, um, the government of Belize is they also, in addition to the oil stuff, they did um, protect the grazing fish, the parrotfish and the surgeon fish over 10 years ago now, I think 2009. And we've just seen um, the rest of the Mesoamerican countries follow suit. Um, this is something Jamaica can barely consider. They love to eat parrotfish. So um, the, the fishing regulations, while they're not um, 100%, that was a, a major step for, um, for Belize is to protect those grazers that help keep the macroalgae down off the reef as well. And I would add that in some of those other countries, there's lots of development right up to the, you know, right up to the to the beach and and not much wastewater treatment that would remove nutrients and so on. Not great stormwater management and therefore your water quality is probably not as great, uh, whereas in Belize, there's some distance that you, you have to get to, to some of these sites so the the population density is probably less, at least at some of the southern sites. I would imagine places like San Pedro and, and Kikakar, where you have a lot more population density close to the reef that you could restore, you would have more problems from from pollution. 
It does a significant comment, and it is um, uh, the population, but also our water currents are very unique, um, in, even in Mesoamerica, because of the three atolls. Um, uh, we have a lot of self-retaining um, circulation here, and, um, and uh, I think, um, as she mentioned, like if you look at the Yucatan, their reef is very close to shore. So um, the only analogy here would be San Pedro and Kikaka, or all of the other... The main barrier reef is, is um, far from the mainland. So, um, but basically, we, we also, just to be clear, Belize is not treating its sewage or wastewater either. So it's just the, the lack of density and the high population that we've gotten away with so long. So basically, uh, you were quite lucky to, to pick a very good spot, right, for your uh, coral reef restoration work. Uh, Well, listen, that is actually absolutely one of your site selection um, criteria, one of our site selection criteria. And why we see some failures in the past is if, um, you, if you choose a, a site that is already, um, it's just as the, as the naysayers were saying in the beginning, if your conditions are so poor to not even allow proper coral reef health, why would you even bother? You know what I mean? So, so actually, you know, a certain amount of living coral, good water clarity, um, um, high energy, high wave energy flow, all, all these conditions and presence of the herbivorous fish and other uh, creatures like the urchin that keep down the algae. We have a, a long set of site, um, of site selection criteria. So, uh, you know, we've seen places where, you know, they uh, tend to restoration in front of a bauxite mining, mining area, which has very poor water quality and, and is covered in algae. And to me, just as the first step, that's, that's why would you even do that? If You know what I mean? If your conditions are so poor in the first place that you have very little um, quality and, 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 and life there, why would you choose that site? And so that's, that's an argument we've been, or not an argument, but something we'd like to see uh, more standardized uh, throughout the region. And not just the region, but globally now, you know, there's so many restoration projects all over the world. I, I like to joke, it's like yoga now, like everybody's doing it, right? When we first started, nobody was really doing it, one or two people. And, um, in, you know, while not everything is applicable, there are some certain, certain site selection criteria that could absolutely be standardized. Um, and I think that, that would help our efforts on a whole to combat some of the naysayers because there are a lot of... Um, well-intentioned but not thought out projects that have kind of just jumped on the bandwagon. And those, um, those give the naysayers more fuel to argue against um, the effectiveness of restoration. And so um, speaking of all these uh, international efforts, um, can, you, uh, can you and Maya uh, say what other um, conservationists who are concerned with um, coral reef restoration could learn from you? Well, I, I can start by saying that prior to COVID, that's exactly what we were focusing on was exchange, um, exchange trips. So uh, we used to say, we had a little slogan, more corals equal more fish. And then uh, when we were still struggling to, to quantify our results, we changed it to um, seen as Belizean because there's nothing, nothing that compares with actually seeing the site in person. So we were really pushing this and, and we had some funding. We conducted, as I mentioned, the, um, the exchange trip in Jamaica. We've done some work in Colombia. We've um, 
done work with Mexican partners and um, folks in the same in um, the Eastern Caribbean, St. Bart's. Uh, but since COVID, it's kind of we have to rethink this again because uh, we found that really valuable that that people could come here and actually see for themselves. And again not knowing when you mentioned the other side of the world's reef sites, I think it would be less useful for me, uh, even pre-COVID, to go over there and interpret what's happening. It's much more useful for those people to come and see what's worked in our area, and then they can pick and choose what applies to their sites that they hopefully know as well as we know our sites, if that makes sense. It does. Um, Maya, do you have anything to add? I would just echo what Lisa said, and I've I've been in Belize when... There was an exchange trip with members from uh, reef, reef rest restorers from Jamaica who came. And I remember go, when we first went down into the water, one of the Jamaicans was sort of screaming because they saw marlin and these larger fish. And I think that's really important. So that, you know, especially in the Caribbean region, having this connection where your practitioners see sites that 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 have been around for a long time and see sort of what a great looking site looks like uh, and then be more inspired when you're back home working and it's not as though they were not seeing uh, good results from some of the restoration work it's just that Belize is 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 sort of just so be you know such a shining star for the rest of the Caribbean that really it would be great if others could come and see that and really have to have serious conversations throughout the region on how a regional approach to restoration could really sustain livelihoods and how important having a healthy reef is to the Caribbean. And what can these uh, people who come on these excursions or on these um, training programs, what do they take back? Like, what do they apply? For example, you said that... Um, In Jamaica, uh, the government uh, is not so much interested in um, protecting the reefs because they prefer to do the oil mining. So, so those are quite hard conditions. So even if people go uh, to Belize and they see that it's working there, when they come home, they have they uh, they have very difficult conditions to work in. So, so what what do they practically apply when when they come? One of the one of the main reasons the Jamaicans asked to to come visit us was to learn the outplanting technique with cement, because uh, many folks are using epoxy. Um, it's quite expensive marine epoxy, um, and or actually in Jamaica they were tying each um, single piece of fragment on with a fishing line, which you can imagine is very laborious and time consuming. And so um, that's been primarily um, the, the main technique that people want to learn uh, from us is how we outplant with cement. And I think since then, the University of Miami group has um, taken that on too. Uh, with the staghorn, there was sort of this, un this rule about three-point contact where they would put out a, a large branching coral and just uh, epoxy it in three points. But this does not afford the coral long enough time to grow onto the reef and um, make its base, as I was describing earlier. So when you work with the cement, and there's been a lot of naysayers about the cement as well, um, you know, that it changes the pH in the water and this, that, and the other. But, um, you know, our cement, <laughs> we've been working with our cement for over 10 years, and we see everything recruiting to it, growing over it. it it's not a problem. There are lots of... Um, 
little tricks you need to learn um, that you know you can only outplant in very certain conditions with cement and there's lots of tricks that we've learned along the way to minimize um, the mess and, um, and and keep it as clean as possible but once you do that as I mentioned, um, the corals then fuse o over the cement and onto the reef and make themselves a base. And so that gives them much longer uh, stability and lifetime. And we have the results to show that now. Maya, do you want to say anything? I would, I would just add, I, I, just, I wouldn't say that the government of Jamaica is not interested in, in the marine area. Um, I think that's a little harsh, and they have been. Okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> they have been supporting, you know, some some marine protected areas and fish sanctuaries and so on. And I just know that there 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 is uh, definitely not the commitment to stop seabed mining. Well, and the the per the permitting there the permitting there is much more strict as well. So um, yes, there's several restoration groups, and I think up to. 19, 17 or 19 fish sanctuaries that are for the most part managed by um, by community groups in Jamaica. But remember, Jamaica has a much larger population than Belize, as we mentioned before. Um, most uh, most experts would say that they, you know, they overharvested from the 70s with the fishing um, there. And so they're in a different position than, than Belize in terms of their baseline uh, reef health. And I think, what is it, 12 million people, Maya? It's, it's a huge amount, whereas Belize is barely 450,000, if that. Um, we're waiting on the census data from 2020. But, but um, the permitting is much stricter. And I guess we could also say that the Belize government has supported Fragments of Hope from day one in the sense that um, we're really the only ones um, doing the restoration and have written a manual and um, work closely with the fisheries department that vets our training program. And so despite other groups, foreign groups coming in and maybe wanting to do citizen science and sort of greenwash um, reef restoration um, efforts, they have not allowed that. Whereas in other countries, um, the U.S. included, until recently, there was um, not a lot of collaboration amongst the different groups. That's changed. I know in Florida, there's a lot more collaboration now. But in Jamaica and Colombia as well, um, there were multiple small little groups um, just doing their own thing, um, as I mentioned, without um, a, a regional or national or even local strategy for a big picture um a big picture plan. And so we have to applaud the, the Belizean government for allowing that. And we are supposedly uh, working on, we should soon be working on our national restoration plan. We have in place already what we call a policy. And that policy is, um, it's not a legally binding document, but it simply guides, um, basically it outlines the difference between uh, ecosystem restoration and artificial reefs because people still get this confused a lot in their minds, um, making a statue or sinking a ship and putting corals on it and calling that restoration. That's not, that's not what we mean by restoration. So our policy document just kind of outlines that and gives guidelines um, for any future proposed restoration projects. And we have in Belize what's called the National Coral 
National Coral Reef Monitoring Network, which is comprised of all the marine NGOs that may be co-managers, the University of Belize, the Belize government, um, the fisheries department, and then, of course, I've been on it since 1999. And now um, we, this committee, um, this network vets any new uh, restoration proposals at the fisheries department request. So that is different too, right? We're much smaller and we have more of a control over um, different proposed projects, um, whereas other countries um, maybe don't have that internal discussion as new projects are proposed. I just say Jamaica, the the population is about three three million. Oh, Seems um, like twelve million. Is <laughs> that? <laughs> and I think another another challenge, at least I noticed when we were going to to visit Orcabes or when we were on that coast where there, there is some restoration work going on. Um, it's 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 not necessarily easy to access, and so there are private buildings and hotels and so on a lot along along the area. Jamaica has a history where they've privatized beaches, and so access I think is is a challenge in some places. I don't think Belize has privatized beaches, right? As yet, <laughs> if no, we haven't. But remember, their reef is much closer too, Maya. Remember what you said. If we were there, we would have done restore the whole <laughs> the whole front of the reef there because it, they don't have very far out to their reef, and then it's a huge drop off, and so. This is what we mean by we, when we say that every site has different conditions. And uh, while many, as I said, there's no one recipe or one shoe fits all for this type of work, what, what you really need is local knowledge. And one of the things that doesn't get emphasized enough, I think, because now we see people getting their masters and PhDs and reef restoration and writing these literature reviews and all of these things. And what's often overlooked is that you really need to know your your reef habitat personally. You can't just fly in two weeks, twice a year um, and start some project somewhere. And so that's why, for example, in St. Bart's, uh, the folks that have uh, done the work over there have done so well in a short period of time as well. They have a very small island. Um, the lead person that began the work was already intimately familiar with his reefs around. Um, and they had a lot of similar um, reef habitats to Belize and then he did as we suggested and has tried multiple different um, both uh, culturing, growing the corals and outplanting techniques and that's the approach you really need to take and then um, and then after a few years based on your results you could um, refine some of those uh, methods and uh, move forward with what works best for your site. I do think, though, for places like Jamaica, you know, Usain Bolt is from Trelawney, which drains into one of the areas that one could restore. And so the the ability to amplify why this is is necessary is really high and on a cultural standpoint, if they if they chose to do so. And I remember talking with Inelec Wilmot, who is is manages the Orcabesa fish sanctuary. And we were talking about water quality and there's a river that drains into that area. And and as an engineer, having the discussion on things that could be done on people's septic systems, you know, that we do have innovations that can help to improve the effluent from those areas. So this idea of blending, you know, the marine scientists with the engineers to come up with solutions to address things like water quality. I think that's the 
to me, one of the exciting parts of working with organizations like Fragments of Hope and, and knowing people, you know, those in, in Jamaica and so on. And do you think that this is happening in um, other places where there is coral reef restoration uh, going on, that the people are not just out planting corals, but also talking to people uh, about the water quality and how they can improve it so that they don't have the effluent? effluence going toxic effluence going into the water is this happening or is it just new and we're only starting to talk about this it's it's been happening and i think the people the marine conservation the wor marine world has been forever trying to get people to improve water quality right from the engineering side a lot of our effluent limits are placed because of the impact our wastewater treatment plants have had on on marine habitats and it's a little more difficult when you don't have a, a wastewater treatment plant. So it's one place to work on and it's everyone has their own septic system. So there's lots of work going into how you can improve those, if, if not putting them all on a larger system. And I think that's some of the reasons we started going to Placencia in the first place, because Placencia from very long time ago had been trying to put in a centralized wastewater treatment plant. And so we thought that would be a great site for us to look at. Uh, because, you know, there are probably people who had some more advanced treatment plants, treatment systems at their homes. And so it's this competition between a centralized system and more improved sort of on-site wastewater treatment systems. They they still have not gotten a centralized system and not much, you know, um, widespread uptake of these on-site systems, which were being innovated by a local uh, engineer, local company entrepreneur innovator, you know, who was putting in these systems with beds that you would grow plants in and so on to take up some of the nutrients. Um, and those discussions you hear in Barbados, uh, the Sea Coral, which is an organization that started there to look at restoration. I remember the director at the time she was with a, with an organization um, that that managed a one of the marine protected areas And the concern that they that that she had was on stormwater runoff and wastewater because it's on the west coast of Barbados, which is really there. They call it the Gold Coast, expensive hotels uh, and one right next to the site had the lawn, which is really close to the to this to the sea you know, this lush green grass. So they're obviously fertilizing and that's going to run into the, their marine protected area. Um, they've since started, you know, really to, to push on the restoration despite not having improvements there. And I think the conversations that one then has is, okay, we need this restoration. How do we improve the wastewater and stormwater management? So not that you have to wait on one to do the other. And I think that's also a benefit in Belize because there are sites closer to Placencia, like False Key, where, you know, you could visibly see it's more turbid and so on, but there are corals growing there. And so you can have those discussions on water quality uh, and the impact on the reef when you compare there and somewhere that's further out. Well, You've partly um, answered my question. I wanted to ask you, how can civil and environmental engineering contribute to conservation? So um, is there anything else you would like to add? I think we're at a time right now 
where you're seeing a lot of interest in, in coral reefs and under this theme of nature-based solutions. So civil engineers for things like storm surge have generally put in what we call gray infrastructure, so seawalls and that sort of stuff to protect spaces. With climate change and with increased sea level rise, questions of costs and efficiency and effectiveness are coming into play. And you're looking at solutions that are more nature-based. So your coral reefs that do reduce wave energy, but they have all of these other benefits, right? They're benefits for if you do have a tourist industry, you can earn money that way. They're ecological benefits. So they are benefits for having more fish and, you know, all of these other things that could they could supply food to your local population. Some of the materials in there could be medicinal uh, all sorts of different things that you can you can harvest or, or benefit from. And so you're seeing a lot of research now pivoting. In the U.S., our military research organization, DARPA, just issued an RFP called ReefSense. And they sort of don't really have an upper limit, I hear, on, on expenses. And so you had all of these interdisciplinary teams and the first, the first year is to prove that you could reduce wave, wave energy by 70%. And then the next year, you have to put your system in the sea. So the first one is, is in a lab. You'll do those experiments. Next year, you deploy whatever it is you're designing in the sea. And then you have to show ecological function. So that got not just civil and environmental engineers. That got nearly every, everyone interested in this new area of, of research. And you're seeing a lot of that where you have people from all these different disciplines, industry and so on, coming together and then figuring out, okay, let's try this if this works, you know, and it's, it's called like convergence research. And uh, really interesting to be a part of it. But I do feel, unfortunately, that because the military is putting money to this now, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more interest from the engineering side to look at this uh, from the artificial reef, reef sense, right? So DARPA is saying that U.S. has about 1,500 or more military bases around the world, and how do we protect them from sea level rise and storm surge? Okay. At the so same, it's not so much about the corals. Yeah, but, you know, and, and then it's also, also at the same time, sort of for civil engineering, I think recognizing things like the, the impact of, of CO2 and methane emissions on on greenhouse gases and our, our temperatures and and so on, looking at how do we improve on the construction industry, which is a big contributor to greenhouse gases or the wastewater industry. All many of our industries looking at how we actually reduce CO two uh, co greenhouse gas concentration. So it's sort of this um, in, in a, a, um, this 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 wanting to support healthy reefs should be something that motivates us. Mm -hmm. one, of, one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest one, is climate change. Uh, I wonder, Lisa, have, what impact have you seen in uh, Placentia on, on the reefs over the past 25 or more than 25 years? Well, that was precisely the impetus for the work is that um, the bleaching events and disease events uh, were getting worse every year and the storm events as well, um, as you know, are increasing in frequency and um, intensity. So, um, in fact, 2020 was our worst bleaching event ever. So it's, um, it, it's serious and it's, uh, 
it's frustrating because the Belize and the Caribbean are not major emission, uh, they're not major emitters, um, and yet we're feeling the brunt of it, just like the Arctics uh, as well. You know, they're 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 losing the most when there's nothing happening from them up there. So it's very frustrating that um, uh, that people are just still not really catching on to the severity of this issue when so many people have known about it for so long. I learned about it in college in the early 90s, so I, I don't understand. Well, I do understand, you know, the money behind the, the, the spin against the existence of climate change and stuff. But we've, we've seen it, you know, we see it all the time uh, with change in uh, rain patterns, weather patterns, erosion um, issues, the coral bleaching, um, uh, the temperature changes. We, we have uh, temperature data and on some of our sites for over 10 years. And we also have temperature data from NOAA, the U.S. government based. Um, they have a sea surface satellite temperature uh, data that goes way back. And so it's it's not a question of it's it's these are facts. Right. So um, what for, what that means for us and what our work began around was exactly um, the survivors of these events. So when all was looking doom and gloom um, after Hurricane Iris and, as I mentioned, Mitch in 1998 and bleaching and disease events, when we started seeing some of these corals make a comeback or pockets of areas of reef that still looked relatively healthy, that's when we began asking ourselves, well, why and how? And in the beginning, the, the, the concept of bleaching was that um, as hotter water in shallow areas, it would be hotter. And yet in 2006, when we did our first national reef monitoring surveys of over 140 sites, and anecdotally from working in the sea so much, we were seeing the opposite. We were seeing the worst bleaching um, events uh, on the deeper four reef sites, like 60 to 80 feet or uh, 18 to 24 meters. So, um, and where we were still seeing healthy reefs was these really shallow areas near Placentia. So it was counterintuitive. Uh, it was close to the mainland, which we just got talking about from nutrients, etc., and uh, our low population notwithstanding. But it was also these warmer waters where that still had the healthier corals. And so over time, we've collected enough data now to show that at least in southern Belize, uh, it looks like because of the shape of the reef, our waters here have been uh, subjected to hotter, uh, more chronic, more acute and more chronic. So higher temperatures and more long-term temperatures. And that's absolutely the premise of our work is identifying the surviving corals that have already lived through a lot of these impacts that have happened in these last few decades. And so as sad as this bleaching event continues to be annually, like last year was the worst one that we've seen. 2019 was um, before that the worst one and 2017 before that was the worst one. So it it's just, it's, there's no good news on that front, but what it does do is continue to give us data um, in, in a sad way to really see who survives. And also um, the genetics uh, front is changing a lot. It's not as CSI or as, as high tech as people may think, um, given that people can you know spit in a tube and do their ancestry. It's not like that for corals as yet, but it's getting better so that finally, hopefully, we will be able to have enough information to start asking the questions that we wanna know um, about how the genetics of the both the coral and the algae that lives within the coral, um, if we understand that better, how we can choose to um, choose to sort of um, 
assist the corals in adapting along the way. But without that information, what we've been doing in Belize for over 10 years is um, the same thing. You might call it a selective uh, breeding or so, where we identify the stronger surviving um, individuals and then we grow them up, make a lot of them and put them next to each other on the reef because the corals are animals. So they need sexual reproduction to, um, to be able to evolve and adapt. And even though these particular species are hermaphrodites, different corals have different reproduction strategies, they cannot self-fertilize. So they need another different individual of that species in order to, when they spawn, um, they, when they spawn, they have both the male and the female parts in the little um, in the little gamete ball bundle. And when they separate, they need to meet a partner that is a different species. And so the premise of our work has been increasing the genetic diversity of each of these species in the sites that we selected, as I mentioned, with strict site selection criteria. And so far it's working. And so that is our strategy moving forward in many places. It's opposite to what you may hear in the media where they're striving to get more outplanted faster. And in fact, we're looking the opposite. We're looking at what's the minimum that we can outplant in each of these areas so we can do it in more areas. We know we can't do it everywhere. But the genetic diversity is a key part of this. And that also, I guess, everyone's doing it now, but back in 06, 07, um, no one else was. And we started with that um, from 07, so. Oh, really? So you have started with this, uh, with selecting thermally resilient um, absolutely, corals absolutely. back then? Okay. Absolutely, and also what we did was um, working with um, Dr. Ileana Bombs at Penn State, who is considered the premier genesis for these corals. Um, from then even, we surveyed natural stands of these corals to get idea of what the natural um, diversity is, right? And so we had a baseline at least to aim for, and that was back in 06, 07, and they just recently published a paper. Finally, now there's a whole group of genetic experts that are giving recommendation to practitioners, and um, they're you know suggesting you get a minimum of six to seven different individuals of the same species or something so. And for example, at Laugh bird we have over 30 of the elk horn and almost 20 of the stag horn so we were way ahead of the game in that sense um, and so that is the strategy that we're using moving forward is basically the idea is reseeding the the reefs that are properly selected with the right corals the thermally tolerant corals making sure you have that diversity so that when they do grow large enough to spawn they can naturally reseed the reefs and so to that end we've also collaborated with um, larval dispersal experts like Dr. Claire Paris um, who is able to do um, modeling of our currents using our data that we collected on the spawning events etc cetera, etc cetera. because as I mentioned we know we can't restore everywhere so we want to use data and be smart about where we put our efforts in so that we are just sort of giving nature a boost and um, and boosting the population so that they can reseed themselves given the right conditions, given that we don't um, we don't completely ruin it in our lifetimes. You're working smart and you're trying to be as efficient as possible. Uh, I wonder what are the criteria um, that determine the success the success of your conservation? I mean, uh, for example, is it the longevity or uh, the sexual reproduction of the corals in um, Laughing Bird Key National Park? Like, do you get what I mean? Um, yes, that's a that's a great question that we've been presenting on at conferences for years because there is no um, total consensus. As I mentioned. 
we as a group cannot even decide what we're aiming for, right? Because people argue that the shifting baseline, the fact that reefs are dying, is like, well, where do you set your goal for what you're aiming for? So there's there's a lot of standardization um, issues, uh, not just conceptually, but even vocabulary that um, our, our colleagues as a whole have not worked out yet. What we define as success is, of course, longevity, but also, as you mentioned, the, the sexual reproduction, which we have documented um, 2014 through 2017 with multiple individuals of different ages. Uh, we worked with an, um, an external scientist uh, researcher that was able to show that those are viable. So they're not just spawning, but we know we, they cross them and we know they can make baby corals. Um, I think um, the community involvement is also um, the awareness spreading is, is key uh, for, for success indicators here as well. And what we're really struggling now to quantify, um, and we don't know how long it will take, is if and when we can really see the shoreline protection benefits from uh, restoring um, a rubble zone or dead reef area, um, degraded area, uh, to a healthy um, living reef again. So that may not be overnight. And as I mentioned, some of the techniques we're using to quantify things are very costly and high-tech, but we hope that those become more user-friendly and affordable, and um, and we're, that's why we're constantly looking for new innovations, and we need to liaise with people that um, are not just marine biologists to answer some of these questions. Maya, could you explain a little bit about the technology that Fragments of Hope are using for um, quantifying uh, the results? Lisa could probably do a better job at that. <laughs> <laughs> She's the one doing it, so. Well, I, I mentioned already there's two, um, two, uh, two main things we're doing, and um, one is called diver-based um, mosaics, and um, Dr. Arthur Gleason at the University of Miami was recommended to us in 2014, so we've been working with him since then, and um, it basically involves um, ex fairly expensive cameras and multiple cameras, so you're taking video and stills, um, time interval, um, um, photographs and your the area that we cover is um, fairly small it's about 50 to maybe 200 meters max at the most squared um, a, an area not a linear benthic survey and um, he's been processing our mosaics there are some commercial softwares out there for example one of them um, that's widely used is only about 500 US for a university license, but for even an NGO, it's like five or 6,000 US for just that software. So that's just to give you an indication of, the, of the, the, the cost of some of these things, but Dr. Gleason has been processing our mosaic since 2014. And what those allow you to do then is the, when he processes them, he stitches them together, and then you use yet another, um, another software program to annotate or quantify what is in that what is in that um, 200 meters squared exactly so um, there's a lot of um, a lot of work to be done with these techniques it is um, subjective because it is the user that is telling the program what that is under each dot when you put the random dots over the over the the, the grid of, of, of coral reef it's the user that must tell um, the computer software what type of coral it is or if it's a sponge or if it's a uh, CFAN or, or whatever. And there are people that are working on AI, uh, which is again over my head, and it sounds all fancy, but when you get down and actually try it, which we have, 
with um, some of this work, it's, it's not 100%. So um, there's still a lot of um, subjectivity, a lot of user um, um, uh, reliance involved. And then with the, the, as I mentioned, those are fairly small snapshots. And we've been doing that every year to look at the change in coral cover. And that's how I was able to give you those percentage figures is from the diver-based mosaics. Now, just recently, we started with the drone because we recognized, for example, the six plots at Laughing Bird Key only add up to about 700 meters squared. And just like you, all of our uh, funders and donors and everyone wants to know, how much have you really restored? And I went back and I looked it up because now we know definitively from the drone work that it's um, you know over 20% of a hectare of shallow reef at Laughing Bird. But before the drone work, when I was pinned to it, I just did some rough calculations. In 2019, I was guessing around two and a half um, hectares. But I think that would be more now because again, that was three years ago, almost three years ago, right? So, and now we're beginning to be able to quantify. So that one is also, the drone is expensive. It's not just any old drone. Um, and uh, the drone, uh, you for shallow water mapping, um, it's very, very slim conditions, much like the outplanting work that you can work in. Uh, it has to be a certain morning hours before the glare is too high. It has to be very calm conditions, so there's no ripples on the surface of the sea. Uh, and of course, you can really only see down maybe five to six meters, even in the right conditions. But um, that has finally allowed us to, to give you the numbers that I gave you with, with absolute certainty and quantify that. And we're using that technique not only for the replenish sites, but to map other natural stands of corals um, throughout Belize. As I mentioned, we've been mapping these corals um, I think I mentioned for over 10 years, obviously, you need to know where your survivors are and who is doing well in what areas uh, in order to, um, to plan your restoration efforts. I think you can also think of um, other ways to, 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 to not to quantify, but to other tools that we have. And so you can go one step higher in altitude. And so you can fly, fly a plane over somewhere and it has, you know, equipment on it. So there's LIDAR uh, that people are using. And I know some of that has been used to sort of map on a large scale where the coral reefs are across the Caribbean region. The Caribbean Community Climate Change Center has purchased its own plane, it, its own LIDAR, um, you know, it's, it's uh, LIDAR equipment so that they could start to do not necessarily just for corals, but looking at things that could contribute to climate change, vul identifying vulnerable areas. And so looking at owning some of that technology in the Caribbean, and then you could go even higher to satellites. And so real remote sensing that give you an even larger picture of what you might be looking at. And as those improve um, in their ability to decipher what's underneath the water, you probably would, you know, start to see different methods of quantificate, quantifying things. But I, I also think it's important that we think of for someone in, in Placencia who goes out to the to the reef, who's been going out to the reef for the last 30 years, they could say, yeah, well, at one point, all of these corals were gone and I could literally see that the corals are back. And so we spend a lot more money on these other things. And a lot of that pays my students, it pays organizations that are not based in Belize. And we, we should be cognizant of the type of training that students are getting in school 
in Belize? Are they being, uh, is the curriculum, is, it, is the, are the courses at the university making sure that they can be owners of some of this technology that is obviously using their space to, to earn other people money and, and, and um, build their careers. So I think it's important to also keep those things in mind and use it to drive sort of training and capacity building on a local, on a local level. I also, one of our students, Michelle Platz, so she's a PhD student, candidate here at USF has been looking at civil engineering, but working on chemical methods to quantify the impact of restoration. So are there signals that show that that your your reefs are also, you know, doing better? And we also have discussions because I'm, I was like, this is great. And it's it, it's a way that she's thinking it could be remote sensing. This instrument could go in the field and someone doesn't necessarily have to go out to see that the reef is growing. Um, and I always think of, you know, tell her or to think about what does that mean for a local job, right? And and are, are you taking away someone's job with, you know, so what is the training that someone needs to have locally to interface with technology versus hopping in a boat and going somewhere? So I think these issues of scale um, and capacity are things that, that you get to discuss and really think about. All this sounds super uh, sophisticated and high-tech for me. Um, and so I suppose that the people who are dealing uh, or who are working with the satellite imagery and drones are externists. I mean, people who are coming from, from outside. But uh, many people, but the people who are actually restoring the reefs are locals, right? They, they are from the Placencia community. That's correct. And they're also the ones um, flying the drone. And we are slowly beginning to get some of them working on the annotation as well. Um, but uh, not everybody has a laptop, so it's uh, more, you know, funds for us to find. Um, not everybody has great internet. Um, that's expensive here as well. Um, and most of the people we work with really don't have formal education. But I wanted to clarify that uh, many people without formal tertiary education have incredible skills and we have found that out via Fragments of Hope because some people are these are amazing photographers and videographers now they never went to school for that kind of thing and yet just being able to access the equipment and spend time with it and learn and self-taught really um, it just um, it blows my mind sometimes to think about what type of talent we have here we don't even know about because Uh, tertiary education is very expensive in Belize. Um, even um, some of the lower level, the better schools cost more money than the other schools um, type of thing. And it's just like anywhere else in the world, there's uh, privilege and, and sort of unspoken, uh, you know, families that get the better education than, than the others or accessibility. Um, and certainly University of Belize is um, around, but they're not that old. I forget. I think they started pretty much when I came, more or less, only a couple of decades. I don't think that they're, um, what do you call it, Maya, accredited. Um, 
uh, but they they do they do have a biology program. They have a na- natural resource management program, and we also work closely with the junior colleges. So we have a junior college across the lagoon from Placencia Independence Junior College. And uh, when we when we were doing outreach, we were trying to integrate on the peninsula itself. We only have primary schools, and so whenever we did training in the primary schools, we would link it with the students in um, natural resource management in the junior colleges, so that it's those folks along with the fragments of hope people coming in to the primary schools um, to to spread awareness and education about these projects. So. Prior to COVID, we were we were attempting at um, a lot of different levels at um, building awareness, but um, COVID um, stopped all of that type of community outreach and and group group um, size limitations, etc. And how many people uh, work for a fragments of hope? There's nobody full time anymore except myself. Um, we have trained, I think, almost 70 Belizeans, um, and pretty much a working team. Um, depending on the activity for outplanting, it could be six to eight. For monitoring um, or mapping, it could be two to four. Um, and uh, we have some fantasy budgets where we envision that this would be replicated in multiple sites that we could oversee. So we, we know what these activities cost. Um, we budget by activity. And uh, what we really need to find is um, funding for part-term, part-time salaries, uh, especially now with COVID. But that's one of the hardest things to get funded with the, the small short-term grants that we have access to. They usually don't want to fund anybody's salaries and you have to get creative and call it stipends or um, honorariums or and so for this reason um, uh, all of the people that work in the field are paid on a daily basis and they are paid equivalent to the dive master rate and um, what type of people do the coral reef restoration Uh, as i mentioned before primarily tour guides and fishers community members um you know and um people that really have a passion for it. We, uh, we ask them to volunteer the first few times until they learn what they're doing. Um, and then uh, before we had the course, it was just after they put in enough time, then we started paying them when we knew they, when we felt that they knew what they were doing. But now we have a, a four-day course vetted by the Belize Fisheries Department. So we have um, at least this sort of standardized um, training approach that, that we take. Um, so, uh, You know, prior to COVID, it was sometimes competitive with the tourism industry because um, a lot of the more qualified people, it's the same time of year. Um, also, um, in Placencia, we have um, certain snapper spawning seasons, like fishing seasons. When those come around, then all of the local fishers are all out fishing for those 10 days. Um, likewise, um, around the opening of lobster season or conch season, all the fishermen are busy. So we have to be very flexible because, uh, again, we're not full time. So we work around um, the other folks' schedules. And when you look at the the we only outplant during hurricane season i mean outside of hurricane season apologies that is december through may and then prior to covid we had huge tourism influxes around christmas um, new year's easter then with those spawning aggregation um that's like 10 days in april may june other lapses it really whittles down your window of time to get the outplanting work done given the fact that we have specific weather conditions we work in as well i don't know if you maya maya saw today i just saw today that noah is discussing 
um, beginning hurricane season officially two weeks earlier this year, May 15th instead of June 1st. So that's another little wake up call for us that um, things just keep getting worse <laughs> in many senses. So basically, uh, how many, can you estimate how many days you have for the planting? Because you said that the people are busy uh, because they were, they were um, working in the tourism at Christmas, New Year's, Easter, then this one more holiday. So how many days between do, do they have for outplanting? Well, um, pre-COVID, um, I could look back and um, maybe send you an email, but um, I do have I do have it all written out because um, I have to report to my funders, and so I could figure it out for you. But I think um, uh, uh, with 2020, with the numbers I recently looked at, I think we only did about 20-odd days um, of actual outplanting. But in 2020, um, it was not covid um, so much. We were only held back uh, the first two weeks with a state of emergency and we had support from the government and the local authorities and uh, were able to continue outplanting. but it's the weather. And so again, the tourism was gone. There was no hindrance. We had permission to do our work, but it was just the amount of weather. Right now, it's very windy again. Um, it's like over 25 knots and it has been um, sort of conditions in terms of outplanting work uh, for over a week now and it's projected to go right through um, till next week Wednesday or so so often it's, it's, it's weather and we have to write that into our um, planning and, and, and budgets and uh, reports um, because we know this over the years and it's less and less predictable when I was first living here we knew March was windy July was windy you know there were certain patterns those patterns are completely gone now there is no more uh, predictability in terms of uh, of weather patterns here and since the tourists but there sorry yeah. there i just want to clarify that outplanting is one thing but there's other work that they do in the sea so it's monitoring it's cleaning nurseries um, it's setting up nurseries also so there's much more than say 20 days in sea yeah and uh, we also didn't talk about the other different type of outplanting methods that we can do um, outside of ideal conditions. So we do have some flexibility and actually with the micro fragmenting, that's one of the things we like about it is because it's very small fragments that we're putting out that allows us to work in less ideal conditions than when you're putting out large pieces of coral because that the, the slight surge would knock over those large pieces of coral versus your tiny little pieces that are sort of flat in the cement. So that, that technique has not only um, let us bypass nursery time, but it's also given us more flexibility as to the conditions that we can work in. And since the tourism is gone, do you have plenty of uh, people now working for Fragments of Hope and out planting and doing monitoring, etc.? We would if we had plenty of money, <laughs> but we don't have plenty of money. So um, so that was also very much impacted, the finances, by the COVID. Not by COVID, um, just because um, we've never had a lot of money relative to um, other organizations. Um, and I should say that the airport is open again, and so there is some tourism here, but it's nothing to the levels that it was pre-COVID. And so there are a lot of people that, that need um, employment. Um, the reliefs the government have provided have been very, very minimal. I mean, nothing that you could live on and for a certain select of the Belizean population. So... Um, COVID hasn't affected us in, in that sense of, um, of grant opportunities, but it has affected us in the sense of equipment that we need that we cannot get in Belize. 
Uh, we used to have, a, as you heard from Maya, not only Maya, a steady stream of external researchers and colleagues that were constantly coming in and out of country. And so uh, anything from underwater paper to a replacement camera or in our worst case, like drone recently, we had to get a new drone um, or anything. Um, there's many things we cannot buy in Belize. And so that... Um, when we have uh, paid for shipping services for even smaller weight items, it comes out to almost two thirds the cost of the item. It's very expensive. And then the other, and then the other way out is when we have coral samples that we want to send out for genetics or for um, work we're doing with colleagues on the new disease. We don't have people coming. We didn't have people coming and going um, to get them out. So I still have corals in my freezer over a year now that should be at a lab in Florida um, evaluating um, some work regarding the new disease I mentioned. So we've been limited like that. Um, if we had if we had more money, we could absolutely be employing um, you know five times as many people. I just wrote out a fantasy budget for some of our funders so that if we could replicate our team like four or five times over, that we'd be employing that many people. Because yes, as Maya mentioned, outside of hurricane season, we do regular um, monitoring, bleaching monitoring, disease monitoring, maintenance of the nurseries. Now we're doing the mapping, the drone mapping. We have lots of things we do besides the um, actual outplanting. And we've also discussed, you know, last year, especially with people uh, unemployed because of the tanked tourism industry, looking at raising funds to support some of this that, you know, people who can't get to Belize who support the reefs and so on would instead donate. And so looking at, well, how do you quantify how much is it to to do one set one one outplanting that would employ so many people because many on the peninsula want to work to earn and and would support that. And so that's probably something to look into a little further. Um, but I think uh, a little challenging also to to manage that. So funding is a big challenge, all the paperwork, applications for grants, right? Um, one of the last questions that I have is, uh, does your coral reef uh, restoration strategy or the conservation strategy have any limitations? Well, as I mentioned before, we cannot restore the entire reef. There, there's That's um, illogical. Um, mm, uh, uneconomical and illogical and that's why we have a very defined strategy about how best to sort of boost nature along and reseed the reef in areas that will um that will support growth and spawning um to 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 support uh new coral recruits on the reef which is also debatable by many colleagues like are the conditions good enough for those baby corals to live and survive even though we've shown that they've spawned so there, are, of course, there are limitations. Um, we're we're seeing a lot of unchecked coastal development. Um, part of the reason we began doing the satellite and drone mapping near Placencia is that uh, we were experiencing uh, what a colleague called death by a thousand cuts. So even though there are some rules in place in Belize about the size of a project requiring certain governmental intervention or regulations like an EIA, Environmental Impact Assessment, there's lesser ones where um, it doesn't require public consultation and many projects that just don't get, they just get permits. And um, that is what we've seen in our area over time. All of these mangrove keys have been sold and um, dredged and filled to make more 
touristy beach uh, resort areas and so even prior to COVID it seemed to me it was unchecked and unbalanced because we have so many hotel rooms that are not full all the time at what point does the government say okay look we're not even filling the rooms that we have why do we keep allowing um, more of this type of investment and development this is pre-COVID um, yet the it seems like most people just hear foreign investment, foreign investment, and then that they just think that's good, good, good. But we haven't seen the oversight on it. And then there we were worried about all these death by a thousand cuts. And now we're currently facing multiple large scale um, cruise ship port developments and plans that are just really impractical right now in my mind with COVID, um, with the COVID situation. And in general, <clears throat> the COVID was not a surprise for many of us that have been uh, understanding and knowing about climate change for a long time. It was predicted from a long time ago. All types of epidemics um, have been predicted. And these are, there's been many papers published that it's, you know, it's a symptom of how we're treating our natural world, that these things are happening. And um, I'm seeing a lag time uh, with the, the, the government here and their responses. It's just sort of like, oh, COVID, we need money, we need money, we need foreign investment, we need economics over environment, and it seems very short-sighted to me um, and that there isn't a, a long-term planning process in place. So it's it's been a little frustrating here, and that is a, a huge setback because it makes it harder to get up every morning and do what you do when there's bigger decisions being made that you may or may not control, and it makes you feel like the work you've been doing is, is, um, is not valuable. All right. Uh, and um, how does the Placencia com uh, community feel about these developments? Do they support them or do they want to protect the reefs more? The Placencia people in Belizean, um, what they call stakeholders on a whole, are very well educated. I think almost every Belizean knows we have the longest barrier reef in the world, second longest barrier reef in the world, longest in this hemisphere. Um, and... Um, and where I live in the coastal communities, um, of course, people grew up in the sea. So, you know, they, they know from 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 when they can walk and talk, they can practically swim and, and they're they're going out to the Keys and uh, fishing and involved with tourism. So um, they have a high awareness of the importance of um, of the marine habitats here. Uh, I think like many other places, there's also a complacency um, in terms of politics and that people Many people I know don't bother voting. Um, they feel that it's um, it's it's all just sort of paid for, you know. Um, uh, the the apathy, or uh, I don't think that's unique to Belize. I I'm, I'm pretty sure they have that in a lot of places. But it is frustrating because Belize is a small enough population where I do feel like if there was more unity um, with some of the tour guides and conservationists, a more of a united front, um, then there maybe we could make a difference but um like everywhere in the world um the the powers that be kind of divide and conquer and so you see groups being split up sometimes or pitched against each other each other um and then combined with that apathy of like it's a done deal already kind of mentality um there's not a lot of um quote unquote political activism here uh as there is in other and do you think that um these people's love for the ocean um made them um, become volunteers for you and made them work with you, like engage? Or um, 
What would you? Well, remember, we don't have we don't use volunteers. We pay. I mean, they volunteer in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah, yeah. Yes, and then and then they um become paid as they as they learn as they learn their skills, what they're doing, and absolutely, I mean, that's one of the things that's very hard to quantify for funders and your funder reports is you know how do you put a value on that when there's a tour guide that goes out to corals they've planted five years ago and see how they've grown it's just you can't put a number on that and so uh it's it's hard to um equate some of these results into um um, papers or quantitative studies that people like to see in our world right there's a lot of talk about ensuring reefs and the reefs value and yet when they do value of infrastructure belize does not have for example the same amount of giant boats and yachts and resorts as say the yucatan where they where they're pioneering this this uh ensuring of the reef so it's not equivalent and when you see the numbers come out for belize they're relatively small and it's frustrating because you know we do have the second longest barrier reef in the world and if you're just looking at infrastructure and population and boats and that's the way you get your figures, um, I think it's imbalanced. And so um, it's, it's hard to, to, to put numbers on those types of things, which are really priceless. Um, so um, I don't know if this, this question follows up on what, what you've just said, but and I don't know if we have already answered this, but how did you manage to engage the local people to, to become a core, what we would... I saw somewhere on the website or in the video coral gardeners. Some people use that term. We 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 prefer the term practitioners, restoration practitioners. Um, as I mentioned before, I'd already lived in Belize for over 10 years um, in this community and working as a marine biologist and also um, as a scuba instructor in the tourism industry. So um, I already knew people here and um, the different organizations here and so when I had my epiphany after Hurricane Iris um, it wasn't that hard to get a few people um, involved and then once we started seeing the results more and more people wanted to get involved so that's that's the least of it like I said if I had more money I could be employing a lot more people but um, I didn't go to school for a business plan, you know, so I'm a marine biologist. And so we've been learning as we go. And um, I guess we're kind of at a growing pain point right now where um, I just can't go on the way we were before. We're managing multiple, many, many grants, eight to 10 at a time. And it was just too much administration and paperwork. So we need to um, figure out a way forward so that um, we have longer term funding and larger scale funding so that we can get on with the business of what we're doing. My last question is, uh, can both of you say one simple thing that anyone can do to help protect nature? I, I would say the one thing you could do is to go outside and to also partner and meet people who are committed to, passionate, knowledgeable about things in your area where they are trying to protect nature. I guess I would say, um, you know, educate yourself. Uh, as, as she mentioned, there's, uh, depending on where you live, uh, different projects going on. But, um, you know, consumers have a big, have uh, power in the choices that we make. And I know there's a big argument right now about how it's the big companies with plastic and, and climate change, the big corporations that are really at fault. And it was kind of a twist and a, and a, and a pull the wool over our eyes to say that individuals can make a difference. But at the same time, our, our economy is based on consumerism. So every, every purchase that you make, um, you are making a decision and you are uh, sending a message. 
So if you think about the things that you eat, the products that you buy, the places you go where you spend your money, um, once you uh, know what's really going on, you could amend those choices and uh, make differences in that way too. Okay, so thank you very much, Lisa and Maya. It's been wonderful talking to you. Good luck with your work and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bye. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I know that this was a very long episode, but uh, I really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know uh, more about Lisa Karnes' uh, organization Fragments of Hope, then you can visit her website uh, fragmentsofhope.org and also check her Facebook page, which is called Fragments of Hope Belize. And if you'd like to know more about Maya Trotz's work, check her website mayatrotz.com. So again, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you gave a rating and subscribed so that you know when new episodes are live. So that's all from me today and see you next time.